Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Uh, I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Gonzalez. Uh, we're going to be doing a two-part episode on uh, upper endoscopy cases. What are the complications that can occur during these cases? What are the different types of alterations we can do in our anesthesia plan, uh, different equipment we can use, different types of things that we should be observing and monitoring uh, to try to give these patients the, the best success in terms of a oxygenation standpoint, as we'll get into, this is a very high risk location for patients to have hypoxia in. And so we're really excited to have Dr. Gonzalez here. He's going to, again, talk with us on a two-part discussion here. Part one is going to focus primarily on the hypoxia that can develop during these cases. And then in part two, we're going to discuss some of the different alterations in our anesthesia plan that we can do with uh, different types of medications, different types of equipment, et cetera, that we can try to maximize our, our anesthesia here for these patients. So first of all, let me introduce Dr. Gonzalez. After completing his anesthesiology training at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Gonzalez spent the first half of his career in academics at the University of Pittsburgh, where he was associate professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine and chief anesthesiologist at the head and neck surgery hospital at the university for 10 years. His areas of academic interest and publications have centered on patient safety, difficult airway management, human factors, and cerebral protection. He has spent the last two decades in community practice and has published extensively in the last few years on safety during upper endoscopy. It is our privilege to have Dr. Gonzalez joining our discussion today. So Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining. Hi, Tanner. Hi, Cole. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here on this excellent educational platform. So Dr. Gonzalez, do you just want to kind of take us away here to start? Uh, I know as I kind of introduced, we're going to be talking primarily about cases that involve uh, upper endoscopy type suites that we'd be doing um, anesthesia in. Ultimately, it's at least from my personal experience, it's typically not in the typical OR setting. It's usually in an offsite. Um, You may not have all the uh, resources that you would have in a typical OR setting. Um, So can you just define for our listeners the types of cases that fall into this category of, quote, upper endoscopy, like how commonly are they performed, where are they performed, et cetera? Sure, Cole. So an upper endoscopy is any medical diagnostic or therapeutic procedure that entails the insertion of a flexible endoscope through the nose or the mouth, then through the upper aerodigestive tract, that is the pharynx and the hypopharynx into either the digestive tract or the lower respiratory tract. So this would include all of the following procedures, upper GI endoscopies or UGIs, also known as EGDs or esophagogastroduodenoscopies. Number two, other upper GI endoscopies, such as ERCPs, which stands for endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreaticoendoscopy. That's a mouthful where the upper GI scope is passed all the way into the duodenum to the sphincter of Odi, where the common bile duct is cannulated for the purpose of stenting the bile duct or removing gallstones. Number three, TEEs or transesophageal echocardiography, where an even thicker probe containing an ultrasound piezoelectric system is passed into the esophagus to a position just posterior to the heart 
for obtaining high-resolution ultrasound images of the beating heart. Number four, bronchoscopies, where the endoscope is inserted into the tracheobronchial tree. And number five, fiber optic tracheal intubations for patients with difficult airways who require tracheal intubation. Now, as you can appreciate, the insertion of a foreign body through the upper airway can be not only frightening to many patients, but also very uncomfortable to almost all patients because some of the most powerful involuntary reflexes, the gag reflex, the laryngospasm reflex, and the cough reflex are designed precisely to prevent foreign bodies from entering our respiratory tracts. Another very important fact that should be appreciated is the astronomical number of upper endoscopies performed annually. From the most recent data that's been tabulated in the United States, over 7.1 million upper GI endoscopies are performed annually. And that number doesn't even include ERCPs, TEEs, bronx, or fiber optic tracheal intubations, just upper GI endoscopies. So that's a far that that number is far greater than the sum of all total joint replacements, laparoscopic cholecystectomies, bariatric surgeries, open heart surgeries, spine surgeries, appendectomies, tonsillectomies, and knee arthroscopies combined. So we're talking a very very large number of cases. I think that is just shocking when I think about the number of cases and in for those that are practicing in the anesthesia field, you know, if you have a day in the uh, endoscopy suite, it's a busy day, but you think about how many of those cases happen daily. And then I think that's pretty stunning when you compare that to all the other cases combined, uh, pretty staggering and significant caseload that we're talking about. So I I think another aspect of this, that when you think of upper endoscopy, I think we're all guilty of thinking this is a very routine procedure. You're just going to do a Mac, or this is just a quick case. And even as you're in your training, you might be disappointed when you have a day in the endoscopy suite, or you might be missing out on, you know, the other quote unquote interesting cases. But I think this is something that is really a misnomer and these um, cases should really be considered challenging, potentially high-risk anesthetics. So can you talk a little bit to really the gravity here of the anesthesia that we provide in these endoscopy suites? I think in large part, because they're so common, upper endoscopies have come to be perceived and even trivialized as just simple routine procedures. In fact, you'll frequently hear the expression, it's just an endoscopy. But the data clearly indicate that this is not the case. I'd like to start, though, with a true firsthand case report. It was a busy day in our in-hospital endoscopy suite. I was alternating endoscopy cases with one of my colleagues. I had just finished the case, and my colleague wheeled his next patient, who was a pleasant, jovial, middle-aged gentleman in good spirits, into the endoscopy room. The patient was six feet tall, weighed 81 kilograms, and had a past medical history remarkable only for well-controlled hypertension and a remote smoking history. He was scheduled for a double GI endoscopy, which is an upper GI followed by a colonoscopy. And by all reasonable expectations, sounded like he was going to be a quote-unquote easy case. As I had a little bit of time, I delivered my patient to the PACU, went back into the endo room, and helped my colleague place his monitors on the patient. All vital signs were normal. Nasal cannula oxygen was started at six liters per minute. 
I then left the room, went and evaluated and consented my next patient, and then went over to the coffee room for a cup of hot chocolate. As I was pouring my drink, I heard an overhead stack call for a code blue in the GI endoscopy suite. So I ran back into the room to learn that shortly after propofol sedation and insertion of the esophagus scope, the patient had coughed a few times and then desaturated profoundly into the 50s on pulse oximeter. After an initial sinus tachycardia, he developed the sinus bradycardia and PVCs, as well as short runs of VTAC. Airway opening maneuvers were performed. A full code was called. The endoscope was removed. The room lights were turned on. The patient was turned supine. We ventilated him with 100% oxygen via ambu bag and administered IV lidocaine. As preparations were being made to start CPR and ACLS, the ventricular ectopy fortunately resolved. The O2 sat slowly climbed back up, back up to the mid-90s. The upper GI and the colonoscopy, of course, were canceled. The patient was transferred first to the PACU and observed for several hours. He remained quite lethargic and very slow to wake up from a very brief propofol anesthetic. This previously alert patient, even well after 90 minutes, appeared to have a brain fog. He was then transferred to the ER for further observation, monitoring, and cardiology evaluation. He was discharged to home many hours later but reportedly still somewhat lethargic. So the cost, a vibrant man comes in as an outpatient after the inconvenience of a colonoscopy bowel prep for quote unquote, just an endoscopy. He spends over 12 hours in the hospital, does not have his upper GI or colonoscopy, delays the endoscopy suite schedule for the rest of the day. Patients and their families who witnessed the code call were understandably terrified and upset. Subsequent patients and families were angry at the long delay. It was tremendously emotionally upsetting to the anesthesia provider. And worst of all, the patient may have sustained a hypoxic brain and myocardial injury. But now let's move from the world of anecdote and case report to the world of data. Numerous studies analyzing medical malpractice lawsuits have shown that, number one, the majority of non-OR anesthetic malpractice suits occur in the endoscopy suite. And number two, most of these malpractice lawsuits were related to respiratory events, specifically inadequate ventilation and oxygenation and hypoxia. In 2017, a colleague of mine, Dr. Basavara Gundra, the Director of Anesthesia for GI Endoscopy at the University of Pennsylvania, published an article where he explicitly warned, quote, airway management is anything but routine in the upper endoscopy setting, and failure to rescue an airway at an appropriate time has led to disastrous consequences. Now, the precise incidence of hypoxia during upper endoscopy is not known, because we're not required to report hypoxia during these cases. It's a quality indicator that's neither measured nor tracked. So unfortunately, we only hear or read about the disastrous outcomes, such as cardiac arrest, hypoxic brain injury, or death that result in lawsuits. But even the American Society of GI Endoscopists acknowledged in a recent bulletin that, quote, since the majority of publications on complications rely on self-reporting, 
the rate of adverse events is probably underestimated. So we can conclude that hypoxia during upper endoscopy is clearly a real problem, which can be catastrophic and is almost certainly underreported. So the question is, do we just accept this or can we do better? So Dr. G, I know you've published a lot of articles in the uh, recent past here about these numerous reasons why hypoxia occurs. Um, again, as I kind of mentioned, it can be very quickly or it can be up to severe, prolonged, even catastrophic, as you mentioned, consequences from this hypoxia. Uh, can you discuss some of those reasons as to why? Sure, I'd be happy to. Let me start by saying that I spent 10 years of my professional life as the chief of the anesthesia department at the ENT Head and Neck Surgery Hospital at the University of Pittsburgh. We were the largest ENT department in the world, and so we had a lot of very challenging airway cases on a daily basis. And whenever I'm assigned to the endoscopy suite in my, sub in my subsequent practices, I'm always reminded of the instincts and lessons that I learned in my prior high-risk ENT practice. So my thesis is that upper endoscopy cases are, by definition, high-risk anesthetic cases. And uh, please allow me to make a case for this assertion. First of all, upper endoscopies are, by definition, shared airway access cases or reduced airway access cases, just like ENT cases, because of the following realities. Number one, the airway is shared by both the endoscopist and the anesthesia provider. Number two, the endoscope itself is a large foreign body in the airway. Number three, the patient is usually in the lateral or even semi-prone position facing toward the endoscopist and therefore usually away from the anesthesia provider. Number four, a plastic bite block is placed between the upper and lower inc incisors. This is another foreign body in the upper airway and can also dislodge loose teeth or push the tongue into an obstructing position. And then number five, the room lights are turned down or off so that the endoscopist can better see the endoscopy television monitor screen. Second, there are a large number of human factors at play in the endoscopy suite, which can contribute to the chain of accident evolution and therefore make the endoscopy suite a very high-risk environment. For example, most endoscopies are non-OR anesthetics, or NORAs, or NORAs, and the vast majority are performed in endoscopy, or radiology, or pulmonology, or cardiology suites, or procedure rooms, or even in freestanding ambulatory centers, often far removed from the backup resources uh, that are available in the main OR suite and that we're all accustomed to having. Number two, since endoscopies are considered procedures and not surgeries, they can and often are performed in small procedure rooms with no anesthesia machines. Number three, again, endoscopies are performed in the dark, making it hard to see your patient, their IV, and your equipment. Number four, in many endo suites, there are very high case volumes. It's not unusual for us to perform 12 to 15 endoscopies per day in one endo room. This can lead to tremendous turnover time pressures, including the temptation to try to hurry the sedation, which can lead to disastrous under or even worse over sedation. And number five, computerized anesthesia records can sometimes force the anesthesia provider to literally turn their backs to their patient in order to chart. 
And of course, a, com a computer glitch on your computerized record can be very distracting. As if that's not enough, upper endoscopies often require rather deep sedation, sometimes bordering on frank general anesthesia in order to suppress those the patient's anxiety, as well as those potent gag, cough, and laryngospasm reflexes, especially with the initial insertion of the endoscope, and particularly in younger and healthier patients. The level of procedural stimulation and therefore the relative depth of sedation can vary and change very suddenly. For example, subsequent to endoscope insertion or after endoscope removal at the end of the case, the level of stimulation drops precipitously and a patient who a moment ago was adequately ventilating or oxygenating can suddenly become apneic and hypoxic. It should be remembered also that regardless of the specific sedative agent or agents used, deep sedation invariably leads to number one, decreased respiratory drive and hypoventilation, and number two, relaxation and eventually collapse of the muscles lining the upper airway, particularly in patients with sleep apnea or obesity, in small patients with small airway calibers, or in debilitated patients with decreased baseline muscle tone. Additionally, many of the patients we encounter in, in upper endoscopies have significant underlying pathologies that make them high-risk patients intrinsically. For instance, in the GI suite, many are suffering from significant gastric reflux, even hiatal hernias, nausea, vomiting, dysphagia, food impactions, GI bleeding with attendant anemias, malnutrition, in addition to the many morbidly and supermorbidly obese patients who have required endoscopic evaluation prior to bariatric surgery. In the TEE cardiology suite, the patients, of course, all have significant cardiac pathology. And similarly, patients in the bronchoscopy suite all have very significant pulmonary disease. For these reasons, I believe that all upper endoscopies should be considered challenging, potentially high-risk anesthetics. I think if you would go through each of those descriptors without mentioning that you're describing an upper endoscopy procedure, anybody would agree this is going to be a high-risk challenging case. All of the factors you mentioned with a shared airway, with a airway that is possibly turned away from you, a dark room, all of those things are real challenges. And I think many times they're glossed over simply because, again, like we mentioned previously, this is just a MAC or this is just a EGD, no big deal. And so I think really outlining those specific risk factors is pretty eye-opening to realizing the pitfalls that actually are inherent with these cases that we do. One thing I wanted to circle back to that you mentioned there in that last segment was something that you mentioned pretty close to the beginning. You mentioned that a endoscope is a foreign body that partially obstructs the upper airway. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Yes. Uh, it's a fact that the endoscope is a foreign body that produces partial upper airway obstruction. But when I did a little research and a little math, I was frankly astonished at just how much airway obstruction is produced by a typical scope. The diameter of commonly used adult upper GI scopes is typically 8.8 .8 to 11 millimeters. So if we apply the formula for the area of a circle, area equals pi times radius squared, we see that the cross-sectional area of a typical nine millimeter 
endoscope is approximately 254 millimeters squared. When compared with the cross-sectional area of the adult human airway, which has been carefully measured by high-resolution CT scans in several excellent studies in the radiology and ENT literature, it becomes painfully obvious that the cross-sectional area of the endoscope equals or even exceeds the cross-sectional area of the human adult upper airway at its narrowest points in a high percentage of patients, particularly sedated patients, small patients, the morbidly obese, and patients with sleep apnea. And it should be noted that TEE probes have even larger diameters and cross-sectional areas than do typical upper GI endoscopes. When you first mentioned that to me, Dr. Gonzalez, earlier in some of our previous talks, that just blew my mind. The fact that these scopes that we're putting down are equivalent or even greater than the size of a, an average adult airway at its narrowest point. And that, that just kind of blew my mind. And so you've written a lot in your previous articles about the limitations that we're going to have here in terms of oxygenating these patients and delivering the oxygen to them during these upper endoscopy procedures. Why is it so important that we talk about the ways of how we deliver the oxygen to them? Yeah. So that's been a, another huge barrier to preventing hypoxia during upper endoscopy. So in the OR, if we want to provide a little supplemental oxygen for a patient, we use nasal cannula. But if we want to provide a much higher FiO2, we use an oxygen face mask. But for upper endoscopies, the use of traditional O2 face masks has been precluded by the fact that the plastic dome of the face mask prevents insertion of the endoscope. So as a result, the mode of oxygen delivery most commonly used for upper endoscopy for the last 30 or 40 years is actually one of our least effective standard traditional nasal cannula or less commonly oxygen insufflation via an oral cannula. I call these open face oxygen delivery systems. They're convenient for the endoscopist because they have full access to the patient's mouth and nose, but nasal cannula are fraught with problems. And as such, they're very suboptimal oxygen delivery systems. First of all, traditional nasal cannulas are recommended to be used at a maximum O2 flow rate of five to six liters per minute. Higher rates aren't well tolerated because of discomfort and drying of the nares and even epistaxis, even over relatively short periods of time. So at O2 flow rates of five to six liters per minute, standard nasal cannula typically provide a maximum FiO2 of at best only 35 to 45%. The problem is that with every inspiration, the oxygen delivered by the nasal cannula is markedly diluted by room air entrained through the mouth and even through the nostrils around the nasal cannula prongs. This dilution problem is exacerbated if the patient is primarily a mouth breather. And a host of other very common clinical nasal pathologies, such as hay fever, nasal congestion, nasal polyps, hypertrophied nasal turbinates, and deviated nasal septum, will even further reduce the efficacy of traditional nasal cannula. By way of contrast, it's very important to note that traditional oxygen face masks, especially ones with non-rebreathing side O2 reservoirs at O2 flow rates of 9 to 15 liters per minute, comfortably and reliably provide much higher FiO2s of approximately 90 to 95%, regardless of whether the patient is predominantly a nose or mouth breather. I think bringing this together, we've talked in you know classes about 
the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve. We've talked about total blood oxygenation content. Can you help us kind of pair these together, bring this full circle for us to talk about the clinical importance of these concepts? Absolutely. Um, let's review a little physiology here. So the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve should be indelibly engraved in your minds forever at this point in your training. But it's not only a favorite test question on board exams, it's a really important clinical concept. As you know, the curve simply plots the relationship between the arterial PO2 or partial pressure of oxygen as measured by arterial blood gas analysis plotted on the X or horizontal axis in millimeters mercury versus the hemoglobin O2 saturation measured in percent on the Y or vertical axis. But the curve is very important clinically because in clinical anesthesia practice, what we normally measure and monitor real time is the percent O2 sat on our pulse oximeter, not the arterial PO2. For the sake of this discussion, I'd like to focus on just a few aspects of the hemoglobin O2 curve. It's shape, and the curve is S-shaped, as you all know, and two specific points on the curve. Let's start with normal O2 sat for a healthy person breathing room air, which contains an FiO2 of approximately 21%, is in the 95 to 100% range. This is what I call the 99-99 or 100-100 point on the hemoglobin O2 curve. This 100-100 points oxygen saturation is about 99 to 100% according to the curve. If we were to measure an arterial blood gas, the patient's arterial PO2 would also be approximately 99 to 100 millimeters mercury at that point. So if your patient starts out on the healthy 100-100 right-hand portion of the curve, where the O2 sat is in the high 90s or close to 100, but suddenly becomes apneic, or obstructed, or both, their O2 sat will start to drop fairly quickly toward the low 90s, but then will hit the very steep downward portion of the S-shaped curve, the so-called slippery slope, where your patient's hemoglobin O2 carrying capacity and therefore oxygen delivery to tissues will very rapidly plummet. Some call this the downward death march of the pulse oximeter, very appropriately. So the body's reflex response to this hypoxic, hypercarbic, acidotic emergency is to secrete epinephrine and catecholamines to increase cardiac output to attempt to deliver more blood to the lungs for oxygenation. But if the lungs are apneic or obstructed, that attempt is a total failure. And paradoxically, the increase in, car in cardiac output results in a tremendous increase in O2 demand and consumption. Thus begins the pathologic death spiral. Your cells try to switch over to anaerobic metabolism in an attempt to survive, but unless you're a very well-conditioned free diver or swimmer or extreme athlete, in a short amount of time, cells, particularly in the brain and heart, which are the most metabolically active organs with very high minute oxygen requirements, begin to suffer and die. And this is certainly not well tolerated by patients with comorbid conditions such as cerebrovascular or coronary insufficiency, anemia, or high metabolic rates as we see in fever or hyperthyroidism. Thus, the common expressions from CPR and ACLS training, time equals myocardium and time equals brain cells. 
and the time kinetics here are single digit minutes. Another very important clinical point to always remember on the curve is what I call the 75 slash 40 point. This is the hemoglobin O2 sat, approximately 75%, and the corresponding arterial PO2, approximately 40 millimeters mercury, of normal mixed venous blood. Mixed venous blood is the oxygen-depleted spent blood returning to the lungs for reoxygenation. It's sampled from the pulmonary artery just prior to the pulmonary circulation and is purple or dark blue in color. So if your patient's arterial hemoglobin O2 sat drops to 75%, it's reasonable to assume that this is not a good situation for your patient's heart and brain. Thus, 75% should be considered a medical emergency situation and should be avoided whenever possible and treated aggressively whenever it approaches or occurs. Now, a brief word about the total blood oxygen content formula which you've also studied and which is also very clinically relevant. To review, that formula states that blood's total oxygen content is the sum of two components, the hemoglobin-bound oxygen plus the dissolved oxygen in the liquid phase of the blood. Specifically, the formula states that the hemoglobin-bound oxygen content of the blood is calculated by multiplying your patient's hemoglobin normally approximately 14 or 15, by your patient's O2 sat, normally 95 to 100%, by a constant which is equal to 1.34. Part two of the formula states that the dissolved oxygen content is calculated by multiplying your patient's arterial PO2 measured by blood gas analysis times a much smaller constant, which is equal to 0.003. So under normal circumstances, in a patient with normal hemoglobin, normal lungs, breathing room air with an FiO2 of 21%, the significant majority of the blood's O2 content is indeed in the hemoglobin-bound oxygen. So we tend to get lazy and completely forget about the second half of the total oxygen content formula and just pay attention to the first half, the hemoglobin-bound oxygen portion of the formula. But there are two very important caveats that you should always remember clinically. First, if your patient is anemic, as are many patients undergoing GI endoscopy due to GI bleeding, the hemoglobin O2 half of the total O2 content formula becomes tremendously diminished. And secondly, if you provide a higher FiO2 to your patient, the measured oxygen saturation on pulse oximeter does quickly max out at 100% sat. But if you continue to provide high FiO2s, such as 100% FiO2 to your patient, the dissolved arterial PO2 will continue to rise from approximately the high 90s or 100 millimeters of mercury to greater than 600 millimeters mercury which now very significantly increases the contribution of that neglected second half of the total O2 content formula. Again, I think this is something that, you know, you learn this formula when you go through school and it's something that you don't really think about the full scope of this equation when you're just clinically working uh, and taking care of a patient. I know often for me, I'll go as far as kind of what you mentioned, whereas if I have a patient with a lower hemoglobin, In my head, I'll think, okay, they're going to have less carrying capacity for this oxygen. 
Um, but you do have to uh, take into account that second half of the equation, like you were saying, which kind of leads me into my next question here, which is how, how do you actually define when someone becomes hypoxic um, when we're not providing enough oxygen to the cells uh, and the tissues of these patients? How do you actually define hypoxia? Unfortunately, not only are there no requirements for reporting episodes of hypoxia, but there are also no well-accepted universal definitions for exactly what constitutes clinically significant hypoxia. We know that there is certainly interpatient variability in the tolerance of a given hypoxic episode. So again, an extremely well-conditioned free diver or swimmer or an elite extreme athlete might better tolerate an acute episode of hypoxia than would a 73-year-old PS3 patient with known or occult cerebrovascular or coronary insufficiency, or than would even an otherwise healthy 35-year-old with a moderate degree of anemia or with a hypermetabolic state due to a fever. It seems to me that a logical definition of clinically significant hypoxia would need to include not only the depth of the O2 desaturation, but also the duration. As an example of one working definition that is used by the Harvard Medical School Division of Sleep Medicine for their sleep apnea patients, I quote, reductions to O2 sats of no less than 90% are considered mild. Dips into the 80 to 90% range can be considered moderate and those below 80% severe. So in answer to your question, the safest posture from a patient safety point of view is to err on the side of patient safety and to adopt a zero tolerance philosophy and approach to hypoxia. When we talk about hypoxia, one of the things that immediately comes to mind for me is in terms of induction, we think a lot about pre-oxygenation and increasing your safe apneic time to perform your induction, perform your intubation, things like that. You've written quite a bit about the maximal pre-oxygenation and this safe apneic time. Can you talk about these a little more here for us and just discuss what that really looks like and what those terms really mean in terms of a clinical setting, uh, specifically here for the upper endoscopy, but what does that maximal pre-oxygenation and safe apneic time really look like? Uh, okay. So up until the mid 1980s, we had no practical, reliable way of monitoring a patient's oxygenation status, except for when they either literally turned blue from cyanosis or had cardiac arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. But then in the mid 1980s, clinical anesthesia underwent a revolutionary change for the better with the invention of the continuous pulse oximeter. And in 1984, doctors G.B. Drummond and G.R. Park from the Department of Anesthetics in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, Scotland, published a landmark study in the British Journal of Anesthesia. They simply placed pulse oximeters on patients prior to and during induction of general anesthesia and apnea with pentothal and succinylcholine and observed the pulse oximeter readings. In doing this, they define what is now called the safe apneic time or just apneic time, which is the time measured in seconds from the onset of apnea or airway obstruction 
until the arterial O2 saturation falls below 90% and enters that steep, rapid, dangerous descent phase of the hemoglobin saturation curve. What they found was, number one, patients breathing room air prior to induction dropped to a SAT of 85% just one minute, 60 seconds after induction. Number two, overweight patients dropped even more to 80% in the same amount of time, one minute. But number three, patients who were given 10 liters per minute of 100% oxygen by face mask prior to induction did not ever desaturate to below 94% even after three full minutes of full apnea. In other words, Drummond and Park documented the pre-oxygenation significantly in fact, more than tripled the safe apneic time before profound O2 desaturation. So this finding was a gigantic advance in anesthesia patient safety. And numerous published studies and decades of clinical experience since then have confirmed this massively important principle. In fact, it's been shown that maximal preoxygenation can, can prolong the safe apneic time by up to eight times longer in many healthy patients. Now, it's critically important to note that while preoxygenation significantly prolongs the safe apneic time to critical desaturation, hypercarbia and acidosis are still occurring during apnea. So it's still critically important to recognize the hypoventilation and apnea early on by close clinical observation of your patient and by the close monitoring of continuous capnography and to treat that hypoventilation or apnea assertively and early. Pre-oxygenation just buys you more safe time to effectively treat the hypoventilation or apnea. In a landmark editorial published in the journal Anesthesiology in 1999, Dr. John Benyamoff explicitly advocated for maximal pre-oxygenation pre for all patients whenever possible to allow the anesthesia provider more time to solve and correct an unexpected difficult airway or apnea situation. This practice has served my patients very well for my entire career in the operating room. I believe the same argument for routine maximum pre-oxygenation can be made for upper endoscopies. So for me, coming into anesthesia, always having a pulse oximetry reading and all the cases I do, it, it does blow my mind to think about how anesthesia was provided before when you're talking about when these studies are first coming out before we even had a pulse oximeter and be able to assess how these patients are oxygenating from that standpoint, you know, for the first minute, two minutes, three minutes after induction prior to getting a secured airway. And it's just fascinating to me to, to think about um, the different complications that would have occurred with these kind of patients prior to having this type of monitoring device and just how important it is. Um, and as you alluded to as well, also having the um, entitled CO2 monitors to assess if you're actually ventilating the patient or not as well. Um, that kind of brings me into the, the the question of, and I think you've alluded to this earlier in our discussion, but is when you simply pre-oxygenate a patient, is that goal of doing that the same as achieving a 100% pulse ox reading? In essence, if I'm hooking up a patient to the monitors prior to inducing anesthesia, and I start giving them oxygen and I, and I see, okay, they're at hundred percent. Now it's go time. I think we all know that that simply isn't the case. Can you elaborate on what exactly we're trying to look for in terms of maximal pre-oxygenation? You're absolutely correct. 
maximum preoxygenation is definitely not the same as just achieving a reading of 100% on the pulse oximeter. It's actually a much more thorough oxygen loading process of not only the hemoglobin in the red blood cells, but also of all the tissues and cells in the body, and also a maximizing of the dissolved oxygen content in the blood. And I'll ask you to remember my earlier discussion of the second half of the formula, formula for total blood O2 content, that you can, by having the patient breathe 100% O2, achieve a dissolved arterial PO2 of over 600 millimeters mercury as measured by arterial blood gas, even after the pulse oximeter maxes out at 100%, thereby significantly further oxygen loading and, inc and increasing the total blood O2 content. So now as we think about that and we, and we think about pre-oxygenation, let's talk about some of the techniques that we can use then to achieve this maximal pre-oxygenation. Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. So traditionally, the original pre -ox, maximal pre-ox technique that was taught to me as a resident was to have the patient breathe 100% oxygen through an oxygen face mask with a good seal at oxygen flow rates of 10 or greater liters per minute for five full minutes of normal tidal volume breathing. But we all know that five minutes is a long time and can add up to significant delays if you've got 10 or 15 upper endoscopies scheduled in a room. The good news, though, is that many subsequent studies, such as Baraka's 1999 study in anesthesiology, demonstrated that there are much more efficient and even more effective methods of maximal preoxygenation in which the patient takes eight deep breaths for one minute and then you're 100% oxygen on your pulse oximeter and full maximal pre-oxygenation. That leads to the question then, when we have these patients for the upper GI procedures, you mentioned earlier how the most common used device is a nasal cannula. Is a conventional nasal cannula able to achieve this maximal pre-oxygenation? Unfortunately, the answer to that question is no. Because of the dilutional effects from entrainment of room air through the mouth and nose, conventional nasal cannula are unfortunately physiologically not able to provide a sufficiently high FiO2 close to 100% in order to be able to achieve maximum pre-oxygenation and thus maximum safe apneic time. So no. We've now gone through a lot of the physiology. We've gone through a lot of the different methods that we can use for pre-oxygenation or determining a hypoxic event, things like that. Can you discuss a little bit about the maybe just advice that you could give us from your experience, from your many years in anesthesia about ways that we can be successful, vigilant in the endoscopy suite? So yeah, here's some advice for anybody who works in an endoscopy room. Number one, you should come in early as you do in the heart room or major vascular or trauma room to prepare and check all of your routine and emergency resuscitative equipment. Number two, bring your A game because upper endoscopies are high risk cases. Number three, learn your environment and find out what your resources are and aren't in the case of an emergency. Number four, place all of your monitors and your O2 delivery system on and turn your O2 flow on before administering any significant amount of sedation. 
Make sure your capnograph signal is good before administering any sedation. Monitor the clinical respiratory status and capnography carefully. Do not rely on pulse oximetry. Desaturation is a late sign of hypoventilation and apnea. Also, check your IV carefully. Make sure it's running reliably, if, especially if the patient is in the lateral position and the IV is in the down arm. Also, titrate, never hurry your sedation. Uh, you, you additionally teach about the importance of using common sense, clinical decision-making, using early intervention, uh, especially if we see any type of apnea or hypoventilation, if we detect or suspect any of that, can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. So if your clinical observation and or your capnograph indicate or even suggest severe hypoventilation, trust your observation, be decisive, suspend disbelief, err on the side of caution and patient safety, and intervene early on by increasing your oxygen flow, possibly halting your sedation, especially if you're using an infusion, performing airway maneuvers such as jaw thrust, chin lift, and neck extension with the endoscope still in, or pull the trigger and ask the endoscopist to remove the scope, call for help early, turn the patient into a supine, uh, better airway management position, Consider removing the bite block if it's contributing to airway obstruction. Initiate positive pressure ventilation with a bag, valve, mask, and 100% O2, and even intubate if necessary. So always err on the side of caution and patient safety. Thank you so much. I, this has been just a really impactful and valuable discussion for me. And when I think about my own practice, and I know for all of our listeners, this has been a very valuable uh, discussion and maybe just a shift in the way that we look at the procedures that we'll do in the endoscopy suite. So thank you for going through this episode. Stick around because in the next episode, we're going to be addressing safety problems associated with upper endoscopy. Specifically, we're talking about staff safety. This might not be something that you would instinctively think about. This has been something that really has been brought to the forefront during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so this is something that uh, we really want to talk about and we're excited to get into in the next episode. In that episode, also, we're going to talk about more solutions. So when we've talked about in this episode is mostly the pitfalls or maybe the things that we haven't really given enough time to or thought about when thinking about endoscopy procedures. In the next episode, we're going to talk more about the solutions that we have for these problems. And so stick around. Part two will be a, another valuable episode. So Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to discussing these next topics on the next episode. The pleasure is all mine. You're very welcome.